standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 132 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this week I learned that my mum saves all of our podcasts. She doesn't listen to podcasts or even know how to listen to podcasts, but she saves our podcasts onto her computer every week. I've got two things to to say about that. One is that that's obviously quite sweet. And the second thing is, does that count as a listen? (laughs) Yeah, totally. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've had a few days off. It was as exciting as a few days off during lockdown. Mark two could be. Yeah, I went to see my mother because I'm allowed to, just in case anybody thinks that I'm breaking the rules. I am allowed to see my mum because she's in my support bubble. And uh, we went to have a look at my dad's new gravestone because I know how to enjoy myself. Is it a balloon that you've drawn a face on? No, it is actually a proper gravestone, but in a rather classic, you know, not my job type thing. There was a plant that I'd put and they literally just put it on top of the plant. Oh, no. Literally just put the, yeah. I thought I'd left enough room that it wouldn't affect it if I planted a plant there. So they've literally just slammed this massive concrete block on top of a plant. And if you take the little thing out that the flowers go into, you can see the plant just dying in the hole. Wow. You'd think they'd be a bit better practised at that kind of thing. Yeah. Or that they do. No, it's not my job. Shouldn't have planted a plant there, should you? And just slammed it on. So I was a bit concerned because I hadn't spell checked it. And I was a bit concerned that we were going to get there and something on it was going to be spelt wrong. But it was all fine. Later on, serial entrepreneur Shah Wasman talks to me about business in the time of COVID, why women aren't getting the breaks and why class representation is key. Amen. I talked to journalist, TV presenter and loose woman Kay Adams about Still Hot, a new collection of essays about the menopause she's co-edited. I think it's happening very soon, Hannah, very soon. There's a very special guest in the Bush Telegraph. And in Rated or Dated, we're wondering why Josh Brolin doesn't wear his shorts over his tracky bottoms anymore as we watch 1985's The Goonies. (laughs) It is quite the look. But first, bullying, working class tits and well, 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 who have we got here? It is time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Sorry if you feel you've been bullied. So our grubby, mangy government must be feeling pretty dizzy right now. Having done so many U-turns, it's basically walking in a downward spiral. What it's definitely not feeling is pretty Patel. Or is it? Well, Tories were refusing all over her just last week. Then an internal report came out concluding she'd bullied officials. And it was fairly nailed on that Boris Johnson was going to have to sack her. And so clearly she is staying in situ as Home Secretary. You spinning yet? Scream if you want to go faster. Mm. Just in case you've understandably chosen to put your head in a bin rather than look at the news. A long-awaited independent report into accusations of bullying behaviour from Pretty Patel towards a number of Home Office officials found that Patel's conduct had fallen below the standards expected of government ministers and cited examples of the Home Secretary shouting and swearing at civil servants. Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA, which is the Trade Union for Civil Servants, said... Here's the ministerial code, the one thing that governs the conduct of ministers, and despite the fact that Patel was found to have broken it, the Prime Minister gives no sanction. A lot of people are furious at what they see as double standards. Furious? Well, yeah, it's currently vying with Fed Up and Barnard Castle for top emotion of 2020. (laughs) 
Surprised, though? Why, you'd be a fool. We're led by a fella who doesn't blink when lying to the Queen, breaking international law, or hiding from voters in a fridge. Bullying and gaslighting come as easily as breathing to Johnson and his cronies. I'm surprised he's not actually given Patel a promotion, or at least a nice badge designed by Chief Crayon Licker, Hat Mancock. <laughs> Maybe the words hostile environment in comic sans and a heart-shaped background. Lush. Anyway, she didn't mean it. Johnson has so far thrown his weight behind the fact the report concluded that the Home Secretary's breaching of the ministerial code had been, quote, unintentional. It's a word Patel herself leaned on heavily in the video of her, quote, unreserved apology, in which she absolutely reserved her right not to admit to any bullying whatsoever. But, you know, she is sorry if she's upset people in any way. You'd have thought an inquiry fueled by a number of complaints from a number of departments would have got rid of that if, but hey-ho. Mm. Meanwhile, in The Telegraph, Norman Tebbit suggested that maybe people didn't like being given orders from a strong woman, which seems fitting given that he stayed by Thatcher's side through thick and thin. And to be fair, many of the men in her cabinet were no better to her than they needed to be. And yet, that does mean that I think his judgment of what constitutes a good person is as skew-whiff as his old mucker Douglas Hurd's hairdo. Oh, now come on. <laughs> Douglas Hurd's hairdo looked like a Mr Whippy. I know, that was one of my favourite spitting image characterisations. That and Grey John Major. Whether Patel survives the New Year cabinet reshuffle remains to be seen. Labour has described the allegations as serious and called for an independent investigation, and boy, do they know a thing or two about bullying, while Sir Alex Allen, the Prime Minister's own standards chief, who led the report, has resigned. It's always the wrong ones with the moral fortitude to resign, isn't it? I saw quite a number of MPs, obviously, leap into her defence on Twitter. And I saw, I think he was an MEP, saying, how could she possibly be a bully? She's only five foot three. It's like, dude, have you not heard of Napoleon? Yeah. Or like <laughs> Queen Victoria? Or Queen Elizabeth I was only five foot three as well. I mean, and as we know, never bullied anyone at all, ever. That's true. It's true. Also the implication that bullying is purely physical. Yeah. I mean, that I can understand possibly the idea that if someone really little was you had claimed that they had physically intimidated a person, that that might hold some water. But, you know, that's not what bullying is. That's schoolyard bullying. That's not like work bullying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Plus five at three to people like me sounds fucking giant. <laughs> it's not, Hannah. It's not. So let's talk about Jessica butcher oh god do we have to yes we very much do butcher who describes herself in her twitter biog as an entrepreneur a three times tedx talker media and an angel no me neither was one of the four appointees to the equality and human rights commission by liz truss the minister for women and equalities I mean, Jesus, this woman thought it was a disgrace that we import most of our cheese. Why are we letting her pick anything? Pork markets. <laughs> yeah, just sitting there with a very, very mild cheddar, just enjoying herself. <laughs> so what does Butcher think about women? Well, she's described herself as an old school feminist, which could literally mean anything. And perhaps that is the point. Now, I've never exactly hidden the fact that I'm not 100% on board with the rapidly changing idea of what is and isn't feminism. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think, for example, it's feminism's job to care about all of the world's problems. But, you know, it's women. Women look after things, Hannah. Come on. If I, as a woman, care about other inequalities or animal welfare or the environment, I do it because I care about those things, not because I'm a feminist. Women should be able to have a thing that's just for themselves. Controversial. <laughs> so maybe that's what she <laughs> So maybe that's what she means by old school. Oh hold up. All credit for doing the background on this story to the observer's Chimanda Gianetti, who's tracked down exactly what Butcher does mean by this. She said, for example, in a twenty eighteen talk, and I quote, Feminism has become obsessed with female victimhood. Whereas it used to be about the portrayal of women as mature, equal partners in society, it now seems more to be about girl power. And yet it disempowers, assumes that we're weak and defenceless like children. It's a sentiment that has certainly rolled up Twitter, and rightly so. And just as a side point, Jessica, I don't think anybody has said girl power this millennium, so you might want to update your cultural references. Sorry, Hannah, can you say that again? I have my Spice Girls playing a bit too loud there in the background. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing the symbol, but that's not going to work for a podcast, does it? But yes, this sentiment is pretty troubling coming out of the mouth of someone whose job it is to now enforce the Equality Act. Particularly when you revisit that sentence and see that she's talking about feminism portraying women in a certain light. Woman, that's not what <laughs> feminism is either. It's like she doesn't understand. But there was something else that Jay and unearthed in what I can only assume was a really grim afternoon oh. that bothered me more. And it's this statement made in the same talk. Quote, Working class girls have been deprived of jobs that they love, such as page three girls and Formula One grid girls, because other women disapprove of them. What happened to my body, my choice? It's actually difficult to know where to start with this, not least because the voice in my head is screaming, oh, fuck off, butcher, so loudly that my neighbour just tutted and closed their window. <laughs> I'm not actually sure what's more offensive. The linking of the my body, my choice slogan to her specious argument or the idea that working class girls, of which I feel compelled to remind you all that I was one, grew up sitting at our MDF dining tables, eating egg and chips and dreaming of the bit of glamour that would one day come when we finally got to give our tits an airing in the sun. Oh, Mickey, how I stared at the wood chip wallpaper and dreamed that one day I too could be a stunner. I hear you. It's also pretty inaccurate to accuse feminism of depriving working class women of work when the real reason page three doesn't exist anymore is a lot more complicated than feminists ask for it to stop. A pretty major factor in its demise was that there's a shitload more places you can see a pair of tits over breakfast than there were in page three's heyday. Heydays in quotes there, just in case anybody was doubting that. <laughs> if a woman wants to make money out of her body, she's not going to be short on options. Feminism is not what's putting people out of work. The Tories are. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Let's apply the principle of charity to her argument and say she is right and I am wrong and feminism has denied working class lasses the chance to be on page three. How many women are we actually talking about? And how many grid girls? Is it more than the number of working class women who don't have perky ticks, but now have the right not to be laid off for getting pregnant? Or the number who look a bit shit in hot pants, but whose lives have been improved by any other achievement of feminism? <laughs> I seriously doubt it. 
So we used to get the sun in my household and one day my mum came down and having seen what I'd been doodling decided that she maybe had to have a little chat with me because there was just a page full of boobs that little yeah. me had been drawing and she said to her friend Andrew who was staying at the time, I don't know why this has happened, I don't know why Mickey's doing that. Despite the fact that there was always a fresh pair of tits, sometimes giving me important political advice, courtesy <laughs> of the son, in our house until Hillsborough and then all of my family boycotted the son and started reading the star instead. Mick, do you have any good news? Indeed I have. In fact, I can go one better than that. Identify yourself mystery caller. This is so exciting. I've never been a mystery before. <laughs> Hello, I am Sarah Millican. <laughs> Hooray! Have you ever been a mystery shopper? <laughs> no, but I would like to be. I'd actually like to be one of the ones in restaurants who just eats dinners and then is mean in a report. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can do that anyway. I don't know who you'd send the report to. It's called a blog, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how very 2000s of you, Millican. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so how's your day been? Yes, all right. Not too bad. I haven't washed my hair, so that's killed a bit of time, which is good because <laughs> I've trained my hair to not be washed any more than twice a week. And that is my main takeaway from the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a good day. I've just eaten some homemade soup that I made. What has happened? <laughs> You're a different woman. You're a different I know. woman. I know. There's more of me, but I think there's more of all of us, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Given that we've all put some weight on, by the time we come out, no one will notice. We just have to change the sizes in clothes and crack on. Exactly. And like seats in theatres and all the key things. Just have to, <laughs> everything has to be a little bit bigger. But yeah, it, it'll be a case of you won't notice everybody else is fatter because your eyes are almost shut because of the size of your cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as well as cooking up delicious homemade goods, you've also been cooking up some exciting plans, haven't you? I have. I like I like it was a really good link that. Thanks, mate. Thanks. <laughs> what else have you been cooking up? I love it. Um, yeah, I am I've been writing a show. Ta 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 Yeah, I'm going on, on tour. I mean as soon as humanly possible I'm going on tour. It goes on sale on Friday and it's called Bobby Dazzler. Oh, that's one of my favourite phrases. So I was already delighted and now I'm like double delighted. <laughs> well, you see, I think of Bobby Dazzler as like the best compliment you can ever have. Yes. Oh, doesn't she look like a Bobby Dazzler? Um, but I've since found out um, that it's also a brand of cleaner for caravans. <laughs> what? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. So you, you too can make your caravan look like a Bobby Dazzler. <laughs> I feel like I might get sponsorship. <laughs> yeah. Does that affect the compliment? Are we now telling people that they look like the back end of a caravan? <laughs> you look like a lovely caravan. <laughs> um, but it's also, I keep, I, keep getting, uh, I keep finding out these terrible facts. It was, a, I think, a sitcom in Australia. Yes, it was. Yeah, so I think when I get to do my show in Australia, that might be quite confusing. I don't know anything about the sitcom. I need to Google it. I need to watch an episode, I think, so I can, you know, explain that it, this is not a live sitcom recording. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a proper stand-up tour. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. That Yeah. So I haven't been on tour since all of last year. Uh, and since oh, April, I think I finished last year. And so I'd already written because, you know, I'm like, I'm a proper nerd. I'd already written sort of half the show. And then I was having some time off. 
and then someone fucked a bat or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go with someone that. Someone a pungle in the wrong way. Nobody really knows the origin. And lo and behold, I had a lot more time to write my show than <laughs> planned. So that's what I've been doing. I've been writing and trying out in a little sort of Zoom gigs. I just thought, how frustrating would it be if when the world reopens and I get to go on tour, if I don't have any jokes ready, what an idiot I'll be. So <laughs> I've been beavering away. How many dates are you going to be doing? I don't know. Well, because it, it starts off with a, a sort of, I think it's about 150. It starts up and then it obviously depends how they sell as to whether we add any more. And also uh, that it doesn't include any international dates that we will be adding in the future. So that's the, the, the first batch is 150 and that feels crackers. <laughs> That's really exhilarating. I'm excited for you that you get to go to 150 (laughs) different places. I'm excited about just like eating food that someone else has cooked. Having said that, I do eat a lot of food that my husband has cooked. But I mean, like in a cafe, in a restaurant, backstage at a venue. What I think is going to be a really good thing that's going to come out of all of this 2020 shite is that things that were normal before will feel 10% better. So, you know having a wagamama's backstage at a venue in Hull instead of that being just good because it's nice food and Hull is always a cracking audience it'll be wow we weren't for a while sure if this would ever happen again so god bless the people while we were sitting watching Netflix and eating all of the biscuits the people who are beavered away making treatments and vaccines god bless them Absolutely. And all because, because I've been thinking about this since you said it, you know, like if you if you stroke a cat the wrong way, it might scratch you. And yes. apparently, according to you, if you stroke a pangolin the wrong way, it'll, it'll <laughs> unleash unholy hell on the world. Exactly. I I once did a voiceover for a documentary about pangolins to help people save pangolins. And I feel I might be slightly responsible for whatever's just happened. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you're fessing up to it. <laughs> As if planning a 150-date tour show and writing it and making soup isn't enough. What else are you up to? <laughs> So we're currently making series two of Elephant in the Room. Amazing. Initially, uh, when we were told it had been recommissioned, we got really excited. And then we were like, as soon as we can all be together again, let's make it. And then obviously, the little three-month lockdown kind of lengthened. Yeah. And I emailed my producer and went, should we just do it all in my pants at home? And she was like, yeah, let's do that. So every guest is at home. I am at home. The producer is at home. The sound guy, the whole team of sound people, which it now requires, are all at home. And the audience are all in their homes. And we can all hear each other. And it's absolutely mad. It is so complicated, technically. I've had to learn so much more than I ever really wanted to know about technology. But we can hear the audience. I can see the guests. I can hear the guests. And it goes really well. And it's so odd. But not because that's what it's like now you you don't see anybody unless they're on a screen that's true (laughs) in the real world (laughs) and do you have a transmission date as yet no uh, next year but we don't know when we're recording so we've done two and then we've got another four to record uh, so they go into the beginning of january the recordings um but then it'll go out not long after that is my understanding but i'm not sure of the exact sort of dates but it's a rage of four and we've been so we started off at 11 p.m and they've made us uh, go to 6 30 p.m which is a bigger audience 
but fewer sways. Oh, <laughs> boo! Boo! <laughs> boo! You'll have to get them all out on stage. All yeah, oh, only today I was going through a script and I cut a fucking and I replaced it with a bloody. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, nah, half past six. <laughs> I don't honestly think you can say fucking at 11 o'clock on Radio 4 either, to be fair. That'd be amazing. I think if you can, then the next radio show is just called the fucking 11 o'clock show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Bobby Dazzler goes on sale on Friday. Where can people find out more, please? Oh, the best bit is always my website, sarahmilken.co.uk. There's a very obvious button to press for the tour dates. And also, if you buy them through my website, they're the the lowest booking fees. So that's the best place to go anyway. You can obviously buy them from venues directly as well, of course. But who wants to go and stand outside (laughs) and go to a box office when you could just do it on the Internet? Much easier. Absolutely. Well, it's all very exciting. Thank you so much for being our mystery caller. I'm so glad to be a mystery caller finally and I will let you know how my blog about terrible (laughs) restaurants goes. (laughs) It's the thing that's going to get us through Christmas. Sarah, as ever, a delight. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Take care. Lots of love. Thank you. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where if revenge is a dish best served cold... Justice all too often comes fecking freezing. So let's talk Mary Frances Heaton, who's been dead and gone 122 years, but is finally getting some recognition for her life and suffering, with a blue plaque dedicated to the tragic patient unveiled in Wakefield, West Yorkshire last week. Because yeah, the tragic patient, there's your sexism. For Heaton spent the last 41 years of her life in West Riding Pauper Lunatic Asylum. Why? Because she demanded a vicar paid her for the piano lessons she was giving his daughter, interrupting his sermon and denouncing him in his church as a whited sepulchre, a thief, a villain, a liar and a hypocrite. Heaton was subsequently brought to court where she was judged to be, quote, a lunatic, insane and dangerous idiot and committed to the Wakefield Asylum in 1837. And she died there. She wasn't mad, she was furious, said Sarah Cobham, who, along with other members of the Forgotten Women of Wakefield Project, researched Heaton's life. She's a reminder that women were very quickly assumed insane or hysterical. Mary didn't stand a chance. On a related point, I thought I'd share the following. In her book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, the excellent Dr Jessica Taylor notes a list of reasons why women were admitted to a particular asylum in 1899. It ranges from dropsy, which is very much a physical condition, but one that mostly affects women, so, you know, fuck them, to, quote, not fulfilling wifely duties. It's hard for me to pick a favourite, so I'm going to give you three bona fide reasons that women lost their freedom. Political excitement, <laughs> being menstrually deranged, and novel reading. Jesus. And note they call her a dangerous idiot, which, were she alive now, would almost certainly guarantee her a place in Johnson's cabinet, right? I don't know, she sounds a bit more forward-thinking. What the fuck was that? My popper stopper <laughs> fell off. Quick, get me to a mental asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I am joined on the phone by journalist and TV presenter Kay Adams, editor of a new book, along with Vicky Allen, Still Hot, 42 Brilliantly Honest Menopause Stories. Thank you for joining us, Kay. My pleasure. The menopause is quite that 
excuse the pun, hot topic, which is all for the good. We've done a series earlier this year about the menopause. Oh, it might have been last year. I've lost all concept of time. And it seems that women are talking about it more. And the media is talking about it more, which is a very positive thing. How did you get involved with telling your story and creating this book, Kay? Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think probably over the last five years, I think this conversation has kind of been building a little bit more. Kirsty Wart did a documentary for BBC maybe four years ago, which I had a minuscule little part in. And I remember at the time thinking then, oh, gosh, we're, we're being very open about this. But the conversation has very much continued, which I do think is a really positive thing. So I suppose it's on the radar. Vicky and I kind of knew each other and we had another mutual contact in Ali at Black and White Publishing. So we had got together for the proverbial coffee. In fact, it was literally a coffee and we were talking about various ideas and sort of centered on the menopause and what we kind of got to after a conversation was that recognizing that this is now very much in the public domain recognizing that this is a really good thing but it tended at that point to be the story tended to be told through the eyes of an individual or it was a kind of medical Mm. account of menopause or it was a sort of help guide to the menopause all of which are very valuable but we felt that what might be also nice is to have a book that brought together a variety of experiences which just allowed women perhaps to see themselves in it because we talk about the menopause but of course it's a highly Mm. individualized experience I mean although all women will go through it they will all go through it very very differently And I think actually the starting point, I had said that I called myself a menopause denier, my little term that I had made up. But but actually that was true because I didn't really have very obvious physical symptoms and I didn't feel I was struggling with the menopause. And I had lots of friends who were. So, you know, if you're not struggling and they are, you don't really want to put your own experience in because that seems a bit crap. And also, and this is me having to be a bit more self-analytical, I realised I didn't want to identify with the menopause because of, I guess, conditioning and a whole load of other things. I saw it through a pretty negative lens. You know, I did associate it with getting old, being that certain kind of woman. In fact, there's one of the contributors in the book says that she sees a parallel between the menopause and mother-in-law jokes, which I think is really insightful, you know. Um, And I just didn't really want to see myself in that way. Now, anyone listening to this will think, what a pathetic creature. And I totally agree with them. (laughs) That is really pathetic of me. But I'm being honest, you know. And so that's where we said, well, regardless of the fact that I was denying it and I didn't have any particularly strong physical symptoms, of course I went through the menopause because, you know, you're a woman of, of that age. But it kind of brought to our attention the fact that everyone will go through it very, very differently. Some people will have extreme physical symptoms. Other people won't actually attach the way they are feeling to the menopause. And and that was one of the things that came very strongly in the book. When you see all the stories brought together, and it kind of saddened me a little bit, the number of very capable, dynamic, you know, successful women, not that you always have to be that, who at a certain point along the road thought, 
oh my God, I think there's something wrong with me or I am losing my marbles. I think I'm going gaga. Why am I becoming so shouty? And really starting to question themselves and be very, very hard on themselves because they just felt, oh, I don't feel like me anymore. I'm kind of losing it. And weren't necessarily making that association Mm. with the menopause. It's interesting you say that because I wouldn't say I was a menopause denier. I mean, I'm, I'm 47, but I would say that I had a very similar attitude to you in that I just assumed that because I'd had no real problems with things in the past, all my friends had always seemed to suffer with periods. That's not something that had been my life at all, that I would just put my head down and not moan and it would be okay. But that said, the first time that anyone said the word menopause to me, it's actually someone that's included in your book, which is Val McDermott. Uh, yeah, oh, I was right. uh, in the Stand Comedy Club in Edinburgh. Uh, so in the summer, but even so, Happy days. <laughs> yeah, even so, up in up in Scotland. So not necessarily the hottest summer ever. And I said, I am unbelievably hot. I can't believe how hot and sweaty I am. And Val McDermott was there, and she said to me, she just said one word, menopause. And I think now I probably owe her an apology for my reaction to it because I was like what no I'm 43 shut up Val like what are you talking about and to be honest that's the problem that I I, of all of them that I have had you've basically been able to cook an egg on me for about four years (laughs) it's funny I mean I never had the hot flushes but another one of my you know sort of disassociation experiences I was on a ski holiday and this would be before I hit the menopause, though I say that another thing I have learned is we probably shouldn't talk about the yeah. menopause as such because it is a stage of life with perimenopause. My colleague Nadia Sawala always used to say to me, "You're peri, you're peri," <laughs> and I wanted to stab her in the eye with it, I, and I didn't know what she was talking about apart from anything else. So I mean, it, it's it's a stage of life that can go on for quite a, an extended period of time. So rather than menopause, anyway, so. I wasn't thinking about the menopause. I felt it was way in the distance and I was on a ski holiday with a bunch of females who were just a little bit older than me and clearly were on it. And I can distinctly remember sitting, you know, in a classic ski chalet. There was eight of us, I think. And I looked around them all and the rest of them, they all had their menu fanning themselves mm-hmm. and blowing down their jumpers at the same time. You know, that's a... <laughs> they blow down in the pan. And I, I could just remember looking at them and thinking, Jesus Christ, you know, is this going to be? I mean, I thought, I don't want that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a terrible. I'm a, I'm a terrible traitor to the sisterhood. But um, but I've come back into the fold. <laughs> you have. I mean, a fantastic variety of women that you talk to here. And like you say, it's a universal experience that is also individualized, which is what makes it so interesting yeah. for some people there's a grief there's a mourning for a loss for your fertility and for other people I think it's almost like putting down an old pet you know it's for the best but what I find particularly interesting is that as someone who is like I say 47 now I have gone through lockdown and I've gone through a heat wave this year and it's quite difficult to know which things were caused by what and that's quite a common experience in this isn't it because this, the, the worst thing about this is, is it happens at the same time for a lot of women that, A, if you have children, they might be moving out of home, so you might have a touch of empty nest syndrome. It also coincides with roughly the time your parents might start to become ill and die. 
So what's grief? What's menopause? It's such a difficult experience to to quantify in your head. I think that is a really key observation in all of this. I mean, for me personally, it it came at a time, exactly as you say, that both of my parents, one after the other, uh, became very ill for an extended period of time and subsequently passed away. So that was the four years, really, from the beginning of 2015. Which, you know, it was a really, really difficult period uh, in my life, or all of the family's life. And, and also my kids were teenage, so you felt that guilt because you weren't spending enough time with them. You weren't spending enough time with your parents. You weren't spending enough time at your work, you know. So, I mean, it was a pretty challenging period of time. And because of all of that, I didn't really have any room in my head for the menopause. And actually, some of the anxiety that I felt at that time... Um, And the low mood probably was associated with the menopause and and change in hormones. But I had a much more obvious reason for it underneath my my nose. And I suppose you think, well, does it really matter? Because it doesn't change anything in, in real terms. But I think actually in retrospect, if I had been a little bit gentler with myself and appreciated that I was going through physical changes... And that those probably were impacting on my mood and the way that I was feeling about myself. I might have kind of given myself a bit more of a break. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But I didn't. I was just in that pretty dark tunnel and I just kept plodding on, you know. And, yeah, I think it would just have helped me to say to say to myself, but I'm not really a cuddly person, but, you know, Actually, Kay, this is a really hard shift you've got yeah. here. <laughs> and and the, the physical side is, is kind of difficult. You know, give yourself a break now and then. Whereas all I felt was that I was failing on every yeah. front. I th- and it's interesting you say that because you've got the thing at the back of your book, which you call menopause bingo, which is a list of about 38 symptoms that are uh, associated. Mm. And when I was reading that, it kind of reminded me a bit of times where I've been down before and you have physical symptoms and you forget that they are probably a manifestation of being depressed or down and I'm exactly the same with this so for example if ever my memory fails rather than think that's a symptom of you know what my mum used to call my age that's a symptom of that rather than think of that I think oh god all that erstwhile youth that I spent drinking too much and taking drugs is starting to catch up with me and every time I get a funny heartbeat I think oh god maybe I'm due a heart attack or something and then you look and you think no again that is I mean I'm not saying they are and if anyone is having those symptoms they should get themselves checked out but it's you you have to remind yourself a bit like with depression every single time you have to remind yourself that's what this is yeah and I think that that is going back to why we did the book in the way that we did, that we wanted to try and show that very, very broad range of experiences that that people could have. I mean, I didn't particularly know that anxiety was attached to, to the menopause. I hadn't understood that before. And I did start to experience anxiety, which I did tie to other things in my in my life. It would have really helped me to know that actually... Yeah, that is because your hormones are going down and stuff's happening in your body and this is not an unnatural thing to happen. It happens to lots of people. Then you kind of go, oh, okay, all right, okay. I'm not a weirdo, mm-hmm. you know. It's not that I'm totally crap. You know, that, that there is actually an explanation for this. You know, we're 
too quick to beat ourselves up as women at any stage yeah. of life, aren't we? And so to be able to say, well, this is actually very well documented. It's a very common potential symptom of the stage of life that you're going through. Relax mm. a bit, you know, chill. That in itself would really, really help, yeah, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I agree. One of the things I found most interesting or most powerful is the experiences, say, of Michelle Heaton, who went through this very yeah. early. And it really reminded me of when I've talked to people who've had cancer very young before. It's the lack of a peer group that understands yeah. what you're facing. I think Michelle is very aware, exactly as you say, that for a group of women like her who experience uh, the menopause early, and in the circumstances, apparently she had to have an elective double mastectomy because she had uh, the Baraka gene, etc. So, I mean, so much already to deal with. And then the menopause gets kind of tagged yeah. on the end. So she is very well aware for, for women that go through that. They don't have that kind of peer group. Because when you're older and you go through it as part of the natural process, much as it might be very challenging for people, it has kind of got a rhythm to it, a natural rhythm to it. But for Michelle, you know, in her 30s yeah. with two small children, certainly one small child and one on the way before she had the operation to lose her um, breasts and, you know, I mean, and, and very well known at the time as a kind of razzmatazz singer, you know, so a lot of people looked at her as this gorgeous creature which she remains yeah. to be but you know what it's like we we do focus on the exterior I mean how she dealt with all of those conflicting it's almost like shells coming at yeah. you isn't it in a kind of military situation it's just like one bomb blast after another yeah and the menopause element of it probably would get overlooked if you're thinking oh well you're having a double mistake to me in order to stave off breast cancer Oof. But actually, the menopause side effects that come from a premature a premature menopause are, are mm. massive and, and ongoing and, you know, take an awful lot to, to manage. And yet people don't really think about it, talk about it. And I mean, who who is Michelle at the age of 37 going to say, oh, yeah, I've had a premature menopause? Who are you going to have that conversation with? Yeah, that's really tough. And it's tied in as well, isn't it, to this this kind of, much as we all try and, and deny it exists, this kind of idea that a woman's worth comes from her, I mean, let's use the word fuckability, because that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah. But what's interesting is, in your book, that, that there's a huge element of women who having gone through this, are still having active sex lives, are still very attractive and consider themselves very attractive and consider themselves as on a new path and an, at a new stage of life. So hmm. it does actually feel like a very positive book, I have to say, when I read it. Well, well, yeah, we did want, we did want that to come out because, again, the whole idea to to show a range of different experiences. Well, it's not all bloody miserable. Of course it's not, you know. And it can be a period of great kind of self-reflection and repositioning for women. And, I mean, Louise Minchin was was one of them, Melissa Wall, and, and another couple of women who decided to take on really great physical challenges because, you know, that was the way that they um, wanted to deal with it. They thought, well, no, this isn't going to take over my body. I'm going to take yeah. over my body. Um uh, and I'm going to set myself these challenges. And I mean, Louise mentioned turned herself into an elite athlete with triathlons, etc. And that that was her way of 
of doing it. And then the other one, just when you're talking about fuckability, mm. <laughs> I think it was interesting. Jodie Day, yeah. She said, I gave the ages of 15 to 45 to men, and I'm not going to do that anymore. This stage yeah. thereafter is for me. And in that, I don't think she was saying, you know, like, fucking I hate men or anything. But as you say, though, that part of life, as you become a young woman and you become a sexual being, and then, you know, unfortunately, society kind of perceives that that closed down at a certain age, a lot of it is about, would you give yeah. her one? Would you jag her? You know, is she a milf, <laughs> which is my most hated term in the world. And even the most kind of educated and together women find it difficult to completely shed that, yeah. you know, and not be even a little bit defined in those terms. And I also think it's interesting that you'll hear older women and maybe this was actually when I was younger and they were older saying, oh, one thing that I find very difficult as I get older is I just become white noise. You know, it used to be when I walk in a room, there was a sort of buzz of, ooh, um, whereas now I walk in a room and it's like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like nothing. And, and they struggle, they struggle with that. And you think, well, what is that? That is you struggling with the fact that you're not getting male heads turning saying, who oh, would give her one? Yeah. Which hmm, is interesting, isn't it? And that's why I love Jodie saying, well, I've done yeah. that. I've done that for 30 years. Now I am not going to be kind of enslaved to that feeling. You know, this is for me and, and this is what I am going to do. And I'm not going to be making my decision based on whether somebody would still shag yeah. me or not. Yeah, I agree. Have you got anything else in the pipeline, Kay? Um, I am working on another project, um, which is a secret squirrel project, I have to say, but it would be another book project that kind of comes out of this, which I have started work on. I've started to do some interviews with women, and I'm very excited about that one, but I'll have to come back to you when it's a bit further. That's terrific. Thank you so much for your time, Kay. This has been great. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Hello, Hannah here, just popping in to tell you that if you find yourself wondering what's coming up in the next few weeks in Standard Issue, then wonder no more, because here I am with the answers. This Sunday's Chops is going to be the last of our International Men's Day pieces, in which Mickey is going to be chatting to Dr Dan Guinness and Ben Hurst at the Good Lad Initiative, which is a gender equality charity, working to tackle the root causes of inequality and promote positive masculinity. If you haven't heard our other International Men's Day Chops, I'd suggest you go back and listen to those. Talking to all sorts of great blokes there, Matt Fraser, Andrew Cotter, Richard Herring, Michael Spicer, and also in our International Men's Day Gigcast, Deliso Chapondra and Lawrence Ricard. But that's lots of men. Have we got any exciting women coming up? Of course we do, because we always do. In a couple of weeks, you'll be hearing a chat that I had last week with the excellent Nadia Hussein. She's got a new TV series coming on. We've got stuff coming up from standard issue favourites like Hazel Davis and Liz Buckley. And there'll be a big fat review of the year coming up. I think that will be on New Year's Eve. Who knows what New Year's Eve is going to look like now, but it's just started to look a bit better, eh? You're welcome. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Shah Wasmond, multi-hyphenate, professional go-getter, serial entrepreneur and one-time boxing promoter. 
Shah, hello. Good afternoon. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right, thank you. So it stands out on that list like a broken nose, but boxing kind of started it all for you, didn't it? A hundred percent. And my biggest regret in my career is not the time that I turned down the CEO role at Bebo, which is one of the very early social networks, which was then sold 18 months later for 825 million. And I was offered a 5% equity stake. So you can do the maths on that. I mean, I can't, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can guess. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. My biggest regret was that I didn't become a sports agent. So I absolutely treasured my time in boxing, loved it, was like, without a doubt, one of, if not the highlight of my career. And you've gone on record before in saying that being in that very male-dominated industry taught you how to negotiate a bit more like an alpha. You didn't have a choice. You either, you know, it's like sharks. If they smell blood, they're going <laughs> to attack. So you kind of got to hold your own. And and I, I, I think it taught me so many lessons on, on, like, so many different levels. Just even, like, the art form of boxing is so much like entrepreneurship, you know? Like, a boxer gets in the ring... And everything is on him. He's not a football player. He can't rely on his team. If the team loses one match, they get to come back and play again. If a boxer loses a big fight, could be the end of his career. Or indeed her career. Or indeed her career. I can only talk from his experience because I haven't actually ever worked with women before. But yes. Let's talk about the present day. And it would be remiss of me to talk to someone with so much business experience without asking you what the lay of the land for small businesses and indeed medium-sized businesses is right now because it looks pretty tough out there right so I'm not going to sugarcoat this because I think way too many people are sugarcoating it I think that people don't really understand what quantitative easing is and I'm not saying that in a patronizing way I'm saying well you know unless you did economics why would you really understand what it what it means but I do think that every day small business owners entrepreneurs like myself if you're running businesses anywhere to be honest it's the whole spectrum doesn't matter whether you're a small business or a medium-sized business or even a huge business we're all going to get affected by what's coming it's not what's happened it's what's coming because what's happened is the government has stepped in to a scale that has never been seen post-wartime before to support the economy in all different kinds of measures but here's what happens when they do that there's not enough money to go around. Mm -hmm. So they do something called quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is when they print more money and put more money into the circulation. It happens typically during recessions. And there are very good economic reasons for doing so. However, like most things, if you think about it, more money in, it dilutes the value of what's already there. Just keeping it really focused and simple for us to all understand. Well, firstly, obviously, the money has to be paid back. So let's figure out all the people who've taken a bounce back loan without a doubt, a percentage of those will never be paid back. A percentage because, you know, let's face it, there are some people who have probably taken them out and never had any intention of paying them back. But the majority will be people who had every intention of paying them back. But by the time it gets to paying them back, their circumstances have changed and they are no longer able to pay them back. So we've got all of this debt coming up around the corner. And on top of that, furlough. Well, It's kind of a bit weird that furlough's been extended because as long as furlough keeps being extended, we are not going to see the real impact of redundancies. The moment furlough stops for good, you are going to see redundancies literally left, right and center. The numbers are going to skyrocket, literally skyrocket, because right now, and in fact, all the way through since March, there have been a number of jobs increasing who really in a normal world would have 
lost their job, been made redundant. And now it appears like they've got a job because they're on furlough, but they haven't really. And that worries me. That really worries me. Um, But with all that doom and gloom, I'd like to say that, you know, there's a big caveat to this, that in the space that I operate in, in the online business space, I think there is more opportunity than maybe there has been since the dot-com boom back in the, what was it, late late 90s, let's say. I think what's happened this year is that people who had never been online before have found themselves online. And by that, I don't just mean they've never been on. Of course, everybody's been online to a degree, but now people are finding themselves, everyone's finding themselves online virtually all the time because out of necessity so what that does is for the online community for people in my industry suddenly there is a whole new audience so i think with every doom and gloom somebody gets the boom and it's trying to stack the odds in your favor to make you be one of those people whilst at the same time being conscious of paying our taxes back and being conscious of paying our bounce back loans back so that we can actually support the people who are going through the doom and the gloom. That is really important to me. You've weathered a few financial storms before, haven't you? And what have those times taught you? So I went through the last recession and I actually bought the house that I live in today in the last recession. And I launched a business two weeks before the uh, the, the banks collapsed in 2008. And we had to cut our whole business model, change everything. And what it taught me is resilience. What it taught me is you've got to hold your nerve. There's a great Warren Buffet, the, the investor, saying that, you know, when everybody else is bullish, be bearish. And when everybody is bearish, be bullish. And it's basically... Don't just do what everybody else is doing because they're doing it. Stop and think, hold on a second. So right now I'm doubling down. I've grown my team. I've invested more heavily in Facebook ads. I've invested more heavily in lead generation. I've invested in, and actually what's really interesting from my perspective, I think from a small business owner is I'm actually shifting from employing part-time contractors, consultants, freelancers to actually getting people employed on a contract. And that's not because of furlough, because furlough only applies if they were already in contract before COVID. But I'm thinking, do you know what? Right now, there are some great people out in the marketplace. So let me make the most of that opportunity. And and if you're not going to, if you're going to bet on anything, you should bet on yourself. That's what I've learned. So your mission is to help people from every background to financial empowerment with a particular focus on women. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that entails? A hundred percent. And just a tiny bit of backstory, because I think it's really important. So I come from a single parent family. I spent a couple of years living in a hostel for homeless families before we moved into a council house on a council estate in Hertfordshire. I didn't go on holidays because I was about 16. Um, I was the first one in my family to go to university. And I share this because actually it is my driver. It's my reason. So when it comes to election times, I'm quite vocal. Yes, I do run a business, but I think politics and business are actually very related. Mm-hmm. And and for me, I'm very vocal about the things that matter to me. And what matters to me is social mobility, equity, not just equality, because they're not the same thing. And for, for me, uh, my my form of activism is through business because if I can help as many people become financially empowered as possible then things get to change we get to create generational wealth not just personal gain so when I look back on where I've come from and where I am today it's not just about the material things that I have or the you know the the business or the assets or any of that it's the seismic shift 
that I have been able to create for generations to come. Because the truth is, we are not all born equal, no matter how much we might like to think that, right? It's just not true. And if you are born into a wealthy, white, middle, upper middle class family, you automatically have an advantage, period. And I have been my whole entire career a champion of equity and 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 I say equity not equality because like I said I really feel there's a big difference between the two of them and for me that covers everything whether it's whether it's race whether it's age because that's a big thing especially for women whether it's your your gender whether it's your ability or your disability it's about leveling the playing field and I truly believe that business is the best leveler of them all, especially today, because in the past you had to have money to actually set up a business today. That is no longer true. And so for me, a politician might choose politics for their activism and for their way to try to do their bit for for eliciting change. And for me, my way of trying to do my bit is through business, because I truly believe that the, the more of us who come from more diverse backgrounds less privileged backgrounds, the more of us who become financially empowered, well, that is when the status quo starts to change. And, and that that's my mission. It's, that's it. I did actually want to talk to you about meritocracy because I, I don't think we're in a world where meritocracy works at all. No. Because the status quo tends to do all right or better, but minorities are still struggling. And coming from a working class background myself, to actually to be a journalist or to even think you can do it, you're starting from a lot lower. So you brilliantly were talking about equity rather than equality. How do we even that playing field? All right, so first up, we've got to understand what the difference is. So I'm going to explain it in in a way that makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to those of you who are watching and listening. So equality is we all get to uh, run the 100 metre race at 12 o'clock and we've all got a similar skill set, right? That that's the quality. We mm-hmm. all start at twelve o'clock, and we all run the same distance. Equity is we all get to start at the same place at twelve o'clock, and that is the difference. That's that's what's not happening right now. So what's happening is at the very front, and and I know that sometimes white men feel like they get get you know that they, they they get the short straw, but it's the truth. Privileged white middle upper class men start at the front and it works its way backwards and white women who have been born into a privileged family start a little bit behind the man but they're still further ahead than somebody who you know who is white and working class or grow you know grew up in a hostel for homeless families and by the way I'm the white girl who grew up in a hostel and then on a council estate to single parent mom and so my stool was set out for me before I even had a chance to build my own. However, just by the fact that, you know, the vagaries of nature, I was born with white skin. I still start further ahead mm-hmm. than my black female friends who may or may not even be better educated than me, may or may not have had a better upbringing than me in terms of their socioeconomic status. But my skin color gives me a distinct advantage. It is just so blatantly obvious on a day-to-day basis. So how do we get to equity? We get to equity very simply in my view. This isn't the only view. And and I believe that like to change anything, it's a jigsaw puzzle. And we can all bring our own individual piece in. Because when we try to think that we can singularly change the, the whole jigsaw puzzle by ourselves, that's when 
it feels too overwhelming and we don't do anything. If we saw ourselves as a singular piece in a jigsaw puzzle, but a very important piece, because you know how frustrating it is when the jigsaw puzzle is just missing one piece and you can't finish it. If you see yourself as a piece of that jigsaw puzzle and you think to yourself, well, what can I do? Well, I can tell you what I can do. What I can do is help as many people as possible become financially empowered. Because when you're financially empowered, you get to make different decisions. For example, uh, during COVID and especially after George Floyd and all the repercussions and all the conversations that were coming up around that there were a lot of people in the online world there was a lot of people in the business world that decided that the safest thing for them to do was to say nothing now to me you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution Mm -hmm. and if you're silent in the face of adversity if you're silent in the face of wrongdoing i believe you're part of the problem not the solution when you are financially empowered you get the privilege and it is a privilege to get off the frigging fence and talk your mind and speak your truth, not fearing who's going to walk away from you. If I lose customers because of my moral, political, ethics, my values, bye. I'm happy (laughs) for that. But that is being financially empowered. Now, I get it. If you're struggling to keep the roof over your head, if you're struggling to pay the mortgage or pay the rent, You think more than twice about speaking up, and I get it. I am not dissing anyone who has been in that situation and wanted to speak up and couldn't because at the end of the day, your natural instinct is to protect your family first. I get it. But how about we flip the switch and we make sure that you're financially empowered so next time something comes up, you don't have to think, well, it's a choice between speaking my mind or taking care of my family. You can say, you know, you can bleep this up, but fuck that shit. Like, I am who I am, and I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. And because I am financially empowered, I cannot be, be dictated to what my views are. I cannot be silenced. And actually, you know what? My voice matters. And that, for me, is crucial above everything. It's true, isn't it? Because there's a, the whole like saying, the maxim, money can't buy you happiness. And it can't, but it can make it easier to be happy because you've taken a whole layer of stress off. If you're not having to think, where is my rent coming from? How am I going to put food on the table? Where am I going to get new shoes when I've got holes in the ones I'm wearing? Like if you take away that, that layer of stress that's caused by money or, or an absence of money, then you can focus on the stuff that makes you a happier, more content, more rounded person. 100%. No, no, no question. I mean, it, it, money doesn't in itself buy you happiness, but it buys you a lot of choice and it buys you time and it buys you freedom. Money is a magnifier. If The truth is that if, if you were a generous person before you start to make real money, you just get to be more generous, not just with your money, but with your time because you're able to have more of it. And if you're a dickhead and you just become a wealthy dickhead, you just become a bigger dickhead. I mean, that is just a fact of life. With the enterprises that you do, with the Six Figure Club and the Freedom Collective, you're really candid in talking about wealth and about wanting money and being open about the fact that you want money and you want people to want money and have wealth. It is something we are historically coy about as Brits. Do we need to change that? 100% we need to change it because otherwise it becomes something that we have to hide. And when we hide it, we can't progress. And so what happens is money remains in the domain of the wealthy and money 
needs to become in the domain of everyone. And that is a shift that has to happen. It can't happen if we don't talk about it. And I'm very clear about when I talk about money, I talk about generational wealth, not just personal gain. So it, there's nothing wrong with wanting a nice house and a nice car and nice holidays. That's all cool. But how about the next step? Why do you think that saying the rich get richer? Why, why do you think that's true? It's because what tends to happen is for generations, people are born into environments that bolster their confidence, that give them the best education and the best contacts so that doors are open for them, contacts are given to them, that they have a startup fund to set up their business, they have a deposit for their first flat, they're not having to scrimp and scrape whilst trying to set up their business. Of course, that is an unfair advantage. Or maybe I should just say it's an advantage. I'm not going to say it's unfair because maybe their great-grandparents hustled damn hard to create generational wealth for yeah. them. So what I'm saying is how about we focus a little bit more on creating real social mobility and real generational wealth as opposed to buying a Ferrari? Like, again, if you want to buy a Ferrari and it makes you happy, cool. But I want to have the conversations that say, okay, so what happens when you start taking six figures home? And, and I'll talk to you about why that number is so important. When you start to take home six figures as a family unit, you have a surplus of cash. For most sensible families, you would have a surplus of cash. That surplus gets you to be able to invest in pensions for yourself or even your children. It gets you to be able to have extra income that you could put into maybe a buy-to-let property and create an asset. This is how we create generational wealth. Generational wealth isn't created by being frivolous and wanting to show off about how much money you've got. Generational wealth, and it's not, generational wealth isn't just about money. It's about the confidence that you are passing down to generations to come, that you showed that you were able to do this from nothing. You've proven that it's possible for you. So if it's possible for you, they know that it's possible for them too. Absolutely. Let's talk women. So women are founding startups and companies more than ever before, which is brilliant. But it's still only something like a measly 7% of investor money goes to women-led startups. Why is that? And how do we change it? Oh, well, coming from a background where I've raised, you know, significant money from VC funds myself. And I've also run a VC fund myself where I've been investing. And I specifically looked out. We weren't solely female focused, but we were heavily skewed to looking to support women. There are so many layers to this. First up, most of the boards that are making the decisions are men. Most of those men are white, middle-class, upper-middle-class men from similar schools. This theme runs through society. I am pro-human. I am pro-humanity. I am pro a, a level playing field. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to fight until we get that. And if that means that we have to fight the patriarchy and we have to fight the, the you know, monolithic white boards filled with white men then that's what we have to do because if it was reversed and it was all women the men would be fighting to change that too and so they should so it starts right from the top and it works its way down the decision makers are predominantly men secondly and there's so much to this story it would take us another whole entire podcast women are not putting themselves forward in the same numbers for vcs for that type of funding women will bootstrap, start from the living room, start from the kitchen, but put themselves in front of a VC, that, that's harder for them to do. Why is it harder for them to do? The opportunity doesn't arise so much. Confidence, loads of things. It's like, I get asked the question frequently, why are we still, do we still not have equity 
in the boardroom. Well, it's not about the boardroom. It's about why do you not have equity in your senior management and then your C-suite and your direct level? It's a funnel. It is not why do we not have women up here? It's why have you not been encouraging that through line for the last 20 years? That's why you don't have women because here's the reality. If you have a board position and you interview 10 candidates and only one, maybe two candidates are female, guess what? Chances are, even without discrimination, you could well just appoint a man because they make the majority of your candidates so the issue has to go back to its roots why are we not encouraging women for example through university to learn about vcs how to approach vcs why are we not learning this skill set why when we have so many new entrepreneurial modules and additions to university courses is part of that not okay so how, how do you apply to a vc tell me Things won't change if you just look at the top of the iceberg. You have to look underneath. Shah, just for any listeners who might not know, tell us what a VC is. A VC is a venture capital. So a VC will be a company that will invest money into startups or near startup ideas. So for for example, you come up with a great new invention and it's going to require a significant sum of money to produce it. So you do a small batch you prove it you've kind of tested it out on small markets maybe you've put it online and you've got maybe your first hundred thousand pounds worth of sales but now you want to scale it and to scale it you're going to need a million pounds because that million pounds is going to invest in equipment and manufacturing and design and maybe some ip that's when you go to a vc thank you I love the way you talk. And you've written several books, Stop Talking, Start Doing, which has an associated action book, Do Less, Get More, and uh, my favourite title, How to Fix Your Shit. It is fair to say that the titles encapsulate your life philosophy, right? A hundred percent. I don't always get it right, but I will always try. Where can people find out more about what you're up to? Because you have fingers in all sorts of pies. So I think the easiest way to find me is just go to my website, com. but also go and check out my podcast. I think that's probably where you're going to get more conversations like this. Um, the podcast is called Building a Bigger Table, and it's the podcast for misfits, mavericks, and magic makers. Pretty much just like you and me, really. Oh, well, I'm, I'm taking that. I'm having it. It has been so, <laughs> so lovely to speak to you. Thank you for sparing me some time. Oh, pleasure. <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what did we watch this week and how many times do you think the makers of Stranger Things have seen it? Yeah, quite. This week we watched The Goonies, released in America in June 1985, not released here until November 1985. Do you remember when you used to have to wait ages to see stuff? Yeah, I do. Based on a screenplay by Chris Columbus and a story by Steven Spielberg, who is also the executive producer, made £124 million worldwide on a £19 million budget, which I think almost certainly makes it a success. It very much has a cult following and it was one of the films chosen to go into the National Film Registry in America. And as you say, a huge amount of things have been influenced by the Goonies, most obviously Stranger Things. Talking about its cult value, apparently on the 30th anniversary, 
the house, which is the house of the main characters, Mikey and Brandon in it, was visited by approximately 1,500 visitors every day. Wow. That would have been 2015 that that happened. And actually, the local council and the owners of the house have taken action. I didn't get so far as discovering what that action was to actually mean that their lives could go slightly back to normal so they didn't have people wearing their shorts (laughs) over their tracky bottoms standing in their front garden for a photograph. Stars, a couple of people who were in all films about children in the Mm -hmm. 1980s, um, Martha Plimpton and Corey Feldman, and also in terms of people who I think still have some sort of fame now, Sean Astin, Joey Pants. Joey Joey Pantolini. Yay! And Josh Brolin. I have seen this a phenomenal amount of times, not particularly because I was a huge fan of it, but because we, as we discussed on our gig cast, which people should listen to, the gig cast with Lawrence Rickard on, we had a video in our house because my uncle drove a lorry for Sanyo, so a lot of stuff fell off the back of it. And not, just in case anyone not, not up with the verbiage, that doesn't mean it literally fell off the back of the lorry um, because then it would have been broken. Which means it would have been in my granddad's house and he'd be trying to fix it. Exactly. We did have videos, but what we didn't have was a lot of stuff to watch on it. And anyone who listens regularly will also know I did an awful lot of childcare in my teenage years. And so I have seen all or bits of the Goonies. I would say probably close to about three dozen times in my life. Wow. Uh, because that's how you made children be quiet. You put a video on. The last time I saw it, it was at a Glastonbury festival about 15 years ago. If you get there super early to Glastonbury, which you have to do if you want to avoid the traffic, they always put the cinema screen and get that going. And Goonies was shown one night. And just out of interest, that was the first time, and I would have said I was probably 30, it was the first time that it occurred to me that one-eyed Willie could be rude. And that hadn't occurred to me ever before. Before we go into any more about it, Mickey, have you seen The Goonies? When was the last time you've seen The Goonies? Obviously, I've seen The Goonies. I'm a child of the 80s. Yeah, I've seen The Goonies loads throughout my childhood. I hadn't seen it for a long time, actually. Probably probably like 20 years. So, yeah, I hadn't revisited it. But it absolutely held a special place in my heart. I was excited to rewatch it. Uh, yeah. I was. I, I was really struck by, with the exception of of hey you guys and the truffle shuffle how little of it kind of rung a bell with me which suggested to me that perhaps I didn't really like the Goonies perhaps it was just accessible and and I mean literally accessible as in I could watch it and familiar I would have been about 12 or 13 when it came out so maybe at the sort of top age range of who the Goonies is aimed at which all sounds like I'm building up to something, which I am, which was that I was actually crushingly disappointed in it when I watched yep, it this time. I found it quite boring, which was was sad. I watched it with Gary and he had a lovely time and he was like, what about you? And I was like, yeah, it, I, I will not be watching The Goonies again. And I was really looking forward to it. It was like, oh, let's watch this. It's going to be fun. Let's get some snacks in. And it was exciting. And while I absolutely recognised it, and you, it's interesting to spot the associations and the influences it has had, not only on more contemporary popular culture, but on what Spielberg went on to do. Mm. And I, I enjoyed doing that. Um, yeah, it it didn't fill me with any joy, and that seemed quite sad, actually. 
Well, let's do a bit of plot just for anyone who hasn't seen The Goonies. And here's where I'm going to start to stumble a bit because I think this was for the first time that I realised that the plot doesn't make a huge amount of sense. A gang of kids who refer to themselves as the Goonies. Do you know why though, Hannah? This is quite interesting why they're called the Goonies. Because they live in a place called Goon Dogs? The Goon Docks. And the Goon Docks is the poor part of Astoria. So these are actually a bunch of working class kids. Yeah. Yeah. And their area is going to be bought up and all their houses demolished so they can become a golf course for a country club. To be honest, I don't understand. I mean, things might work differently in America, but if those houses have been compulsorily purchased, then everything that happens at the end doesn't make any difference. It's not money stopping them. Does that make sense? Yes, so Mikey, Sean Astin, who's kind of the, the leader of the Goonies, his dad has to sign the foreclosure papers in order for it to go ahead. Yeah. So I'm not entirely, but I guess they can buy the the land off the people who have already tried to buy it. Yeah, because it seems to me that those houses would be being compulsorily purchased, like I say. And if a house is compulsorily purchased, you can't then give them money and say, I don't want this house to be compulsorily purchased. So the word foreclosed sounds like their parents can't afford to pay the mortgage Mm. doesn't it yeah but that would have no relevance to whether or not that house was knocked down so i don't to be honest the plot that's what it is and i don't it suddenly occurs to me i don't really understand it they decide they're going to try and do something to stop it go up into the attic where their dad who works in the museum keeps loads of crap that wasn't involved in the latest display for the museum which again seems like the sort of thing he should probably be sacked for um (laughs) And they discover a map to bury treasure, a 17th century pirate called One-Eyed Willie Fennar, who the older brother, Mikey's older brother, played by Josh Brolin, assures him that everybody's looked for and nobody can find. So they decide to go off and try and find it and then stumble into the path of perhaps the world's most inept crime family, (laughs) the Fratellis. They're cartoon characters. Yeah, a mother and her three sons, one of which was apparently dropped as a baby, dropped many times as a baby, and is now chained up in the basement of a restaurant, which is the entrance to where they need to go to find One-Eyed Willie's treasure. And that's when the adventure begins. Like I say, I tried to actually write a list of reasons that I liked the Goonies, and they were quite few and far between, I think, there's quite a nice relationship between Mikey and Brandon, which yes. you don't often see. Yeah. Older brothers are quite often seen as bullies or as like the person who fucks up their plans, whereas Brandon actually is quite on board. He's trying to keep them out of danger, but he actually gets involved and joins in. And he likes his brother and he likes his brother's friends. So that is one of the few positive things I can say about it. But... I don't know. The women characters are dreadful. Just a lot of screaming, wailing and complaining. In fact, I don't think many of the children, with the exception of Sean Astin, I don't think many of the children can actually act either. They just do a lot of shouting. It's very shouty. It's incredibly shouty. There's only one non-white character in it, an Asian-American, and therefore he's into gadgets, which... Yeah, (laughs) I mean, that's He's basically... so. The actor, the kid actor, Jonathan K. Kwan, is also short round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. 
And Data is basically just short round with gadgets. Like Spielberg's given him very little extra to do. There are parts of it that are just, just plain up stupid. There's a bit where they go and find all the pipes. And uh, one of them goes, your dad's a plumber. You'll know what all these pipes are for. <laughs> it's like, I don't think that's how it works. Let's talk about Andy, who just is just appalling. That is a female yeah. character for anyone who hasn't seen The Goonies, who literally is just there to scream and shout and cling and be a romantic interest. And yeah, be objectified. She is just dreadful. Martha oh, she Plimpton's... can play the piano, though, which just become important. Martha Plimpton's character is less girly but has almost no other personality traits whatsoever except that she's the anti-Andy and it will tell you quite how embedded she is in my memory that having seen this a million times and indeed just yesterday I couldn't tell you what she was called in it no no idea the end is absolutely fucking appalling and stupid on a level that even as a child I think you could see it was stupid particularly the idea that what happens basically is let's talk people through the actual end they they escape from the fratellis the fratellis are arrested they get reunited with their parents the spanish maid who is the only other non wasp character in it rosalita then, there's no reason for her to actually be there but when she is there she starts going through the kids pockets like she's doing laundry just at the side of the road because she's a spanish maid and i'm going to get back to maids in a bit she finds a selection of jewels that everybody automatically knows the price of and just knows that that will be enough to save the house. And then the ship, the pirate ship, breaks free and just goes off, sails off into the high seas, right? And everyone just lets it go. Like, that, no one would go, yeah. let's track that fucking thing down, either for the money in it or the historical interest of what's on yeah, it. You, you've not mentioned the pirate ship before, so that's where it all leads them. They end up finding a pirate ship, mm. which was obviously one-eyed willies for now big ship and it's full of gold and there's booby traps that you will have seen in any indiana jones film yeah, uh, yeah. like loads of booby traps there's also i think the thing between mikey and one-eyed willie is a little bit like the thing between elliot and et it's supposed to be that he's connected with this on a deeper level than the other children have that there's something special in this little boy that he can feel <laughs> this thing and who doesn't want their small child to develop some sort of obsession with a raping, pillaging buccaneer from the who's been dead for centuries? Exactly that. It's a healthy role model for all children to have. This, the pirate ship thing's quite interesting. When they filmed it, they didn't tell the kids, the kid actors, that there was going to be a pirate ship. They just wanted to get their actual reaction, which obviously works quite well in films sometimes. Like, you know, Julia Roberts and the Pretty Woman jewelry yeah. box. That's, you know, quite a fun reaction. But what happened was when the kid actors did see the pirate ship, they just like were, were swearing with exclamations of sweary surprise and delight. So they had to, they had to film it again. There is actually <laughs> quite a lot of swearing in this for a kid's film. They do do a lot. Of Say shit a lot, don't they? Yeah, the kids, the kids do swear a lot. Just going back to maids briefly, and I suppose what we could say about the lack of representation or diversity in this. Lupe Ontiveros, who plays the maid in it. Rosalita. She Rosalita, she does have a name, Rosalita. I googled her just out of interest. And apparently in her career, she played a maid 150 times, she reckoned. And what does that tell you about Hollywood and wow. Latinos in the 80s and 90s? 150 times she played a maid. She said possibly more, but at least 150 maids she played in her career. 
Wow, that is that is typecasting writ large, isn't it? Isn't it just? So yeah, I wasn't a big fan. Like I say, I was trying to find some things that I liked about it, which I never thought I'd be in a situation to say that with the Goonies. But yeah, yeah. can I ask you a question? Because obviously, one of the key things about the Goonies and why they are doing what they're doing is this massive connection to where they live. Did you ever feel that to where you lived? No. To that extent? No. The first time I ever thought about where I lived as a place was when I went to university. The first time I came back at Christmas after university and I drove into, well, actually I got a lift so I wasn't driving, into Newport Pagnell and I thought, oh, this is weird. This is like, this actually genuinely feels like I'm coming home, like in a sense. But I didn't go to school in the town that I lived in. And also my parents were both from London originally. So almost all my family still lived in London. So I didn't spend as much time there as I possibly would have if, you know, I'd had school friends who lived there because I didn't. So if I wanted to hang around with my school friends, I had to go to a whole other town to do that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I didn't. You moved around a lot, didn't you? So Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I absolutely didn't have that. I, I guess the closest I got was we didn't move till I was 10 the first time. So I kind of, well, I was nine. So yeah, that bit. And there were sort of memories of going and making dens and playing under the motorway bridge and going to the woods and stuff that fit into what they have done in their area and the kids in Stranger Things do in their area. But after that, the kind of age that they are in the Goonies... No, I don't know that you have that attachment to a place. So, you know, clearly some people do, but but not me. So maybe I don't, I just couldn't associate it with it. On the, yeah. I'm like, yeah, sure, you just have to go somewhere else, won't you? It's just what happens. Yeah, but also they, they, they seem to be one day off moving and none of them have decided where it is they're going. <laughs> yeah. It's all very casual. Has anyone phoned the authorities about their parents? Because I don't think they're doing a very good job. no. I think Brolin's good in it. I am I am generally a Brolin fan, I have to say, but he always seems to be in stuff where he's completely excellent, but there's somebody else who's doing something way more eye-catching. He always seems to be the second fiddle, even if he turns out like a really great performance. Like, trying to think about what I mean. Okay, No Country for Old Men. He's absolutely cracking in No Country for Old Men and wears a phenomenal selection of tight shirts. It's quite glorious to look at. But <laughs> Javier Bardam is exactly. doing that crazy shit with his hair and the, yeah. the, the thing that blows air. Um, milk, he's really great in milk. But Sean Penn is being fantastic in milk. So yeah. he always seems to play second fiddle. And he kind of does here. Because everything <clears throat> that I've said about the children in this, I actually think Sean Astin's really good in this. He is and really he... good. Yeah. It's so, it's so dated, I guess, to answer our question that we pose for every film we watch in this section. It's so dated. The fat jokes, the yeah. the how very very white it is, and yeah. how anyone who isn't white is a stereotype. The female characters, this kind of eighties ideal of home, yeah. I think dates it extraordinarily. Sloth, who is the beloved character, it's uh, it's not the way you should treat someone who is like considered disfigured. No. It's uh, it's absolutely appalling. Yeah, and it's they they think it's appalling, and he gets rescued, but it's still played for lols. What I would say is, I think if you watch The Goonies and instead of seeing it as a live action film, you imagined it as a cartoon, it works. It still works. It's very cartoon violence. There's a lot of violence from yeah. from the get go. 
Um, and the Fratellis, actually, if you consider them like, I don't know, Looney Tunes characters, particularly the brothers and the way they interact, they're kind of Tom and Jerry, aren't they? They're just yeah. like hitting each other with a pan, kicking each yeah. other in the balls. Oh, there's um, a lot of Ow My Balls humour in this. A huge yeah. amount of Ow My Balls stuff going on. So, yeah, I'm, I feel like people are going to be annoyed with us. But what yeah. I would say is if you are, if you do want to defend the Goonies to us, then maybe watch it again before <laughs> you do. Because you might find that you feel a bit meh about it as well. Yeah, yeah, it was genuinely disappointing. So what are we going to watch next week, Mick? Next week, we are going to watch 20 years from its birth, <laughs> from its release, <laughs> its birth. Uh, we are going to watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I had to really think to get the right way around there. Uh, I've never yeah. seen that. Well, I'll be interested to know what I make of it because I've not seen it for a long time and what you make of it fresh. And also joining us back in the room will be that there Jen Offord. She'd been off sick or something. Yeah, something happened. She had some sort of tummy trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I have noticed she's lost a lot of weight. Standard issue for all women.